Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Recognizing prime pheasant habitat. That is the focus of today's episode of On the Wing Podcast. This one is being brought to you uh, as part of our Path to the Uplands series. It's being brought to you by Alps Outdoors and Sport Dog brand e-collars, the official e-collar of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And both Alps and Sport Dog are national sponsors of our organization. So thanks to Alps and and, uh, Sport Dog for not only being national sponsors, not only um, sponsoring Path to the Uplands, but also sponsoring this episode. All right, we're going to start with, um, I'm going to read, as I like to do, read other people's words to them. And uh, these words are from Pheasants Forever Journal editor, Tom Carpenter, who is the guest uh, for this particular episode. And uh, Carp's words, here we go. I will never drop you a pin of my specific pheasant hunting spots and honey holes. They are out there on public land for all of us to find. Would you share yours? Tired legs, worn out boot leather, and beat up paw pads are the prices we and our canine companions pay for good hunting spots. That currency is worth much. But I will tell you what to look for when evaluating your own prospective pheasant hunting places. It all comes down to habitat. Understanding what pheasants need and knowing what habitat features and components to look for on the landscape. Recognizing prime pheasant habitat. That is today's focus and carp is our guest, the Pheasants Forever Journal editor. Welcome back, Carp. Thanks, Bob. It's uh, it's fun to be here. I it's uh, with hunting season actually begun. Yep. And pheasant season, the nirvana on the horizon. <laughs> the real the real deal, as I like to call it. It's it's fun to be back on <laughs> the nirvana. Smells like teen spirit to me, right? <laughs> um, all right, so you mentioned pheasant season, or not pheasant seasons, that's on, on the horizon, but hunting seasons have begun. Yep. Montana and Nebraska kicked off on September September 1st. Neither one of us uh, fortunate enough to open on September 1st, but we both opened, not together, but uh, simultaneously in uh, North Dakota uh, last weekend as we record this, so that was... Um, September, September 11th. September 11th. Yep. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about what what we both found on the North Dakota prairie in search of sharpies and, and huns. And and since I know you're not going to share your spots with me, uh, we'll, we'll let you share what you found. Uh, well, I will share the spot. <laughs> oh, you, you will? Hear it? Sure. It's east of Fargo, <laughs> west <laughs> of Glasgow, Montana, right? <laughs> north of the or south of the Peace Garden entrance to Canada, <laughs> and it, it's it's north of uh, Aberdeen, South Dakota. Well, Boy, you really have your borders narrow, <laughs> don't you? So, but it was um, it was a good opener, I thought. You know, mm-hmm. and we'll, 
the pheasant forecast is out. Hopefully people are looking at PF's pheasant forecast. And, you know, the topic on that was all drought, drought, drought. Mm -hmm. And that's how people talked about all, all summer. And we are no different than any other upland hunter. We, were, we talked about it, too. Yeah. Everybody talks about it. In North Dakota, pretty much the epicenter of it. Yeah. I mean, Montana would um, argue. But yep. um, North Dakota, Montana, really tough drought. So the worry was, oh man, there's it's going to be tough on the birds, and it is. I th I think it was tougher on pheasants than sharp tails, mm -hmm. and I I think you can corroborate from where you were. We we found good numbers of birds. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't call it spectacular, but I'd call it definitely on a par with last year as far as bird numbers, mm -hmm. and uh, and a good proportion of younger birds in the bag so there was there was a hatch you know that yep. it wasn't the big bombers outsmarting us every every time um so i, I thought it was good it, maybe not surprising sharp tails are native they're used to droughts mm -hmm. they're up in that higher pasture land the shorter grass um pheasants are a little different in their habitat needs um but it, i was definitely in sharp tail type country and it was i thought it was good how about you and in your group yeah 100% yeah, agree just um, a quick little trip to North Dakota this is our second year where we went um, we actually took Friday and went to the uh, Kessler um, game production area dedication so um, Tim Kessler former chairman of the board um, hails from South Dakota and uh, the organization Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever along with South Dakota Game Fish and Parks, Perina, Sport Dog brand, e-collars, another uh, mention for Sport Dog, uh, uh, and a number of other partners helped create this brand new piece of public property in northeastern South Dakota by Pickerel Lake area. Yep. A beautiful tract of land, and uh, uh, Matt Kaharski, the, the chairman of the board, and I were on our way to North Dakota and thought, well, we better swing through there and, and um, get our eyes on this dedication and, and say hi to, to Tim. So we did that on Friday afternoon, and then we um, zoomed north to North Dakota, um, and it was a quick trip. We hunted the opener Saturday and then half of the day on Sunday and came home, and mm -hmm. we're sitting in the office by Monday. But what we found um, it mimics exactly what you, you found. Um, bird numbers were strong. The droughts had an impact primarily, um, if you think about, you know, maybe a month ago, we issued a blog about emergency haying, grazing, and the importance of that for, for farmers and ranchers and, and why that's a benefit for the vitality of CRP. Um, but what does happen when land, particularly plots land, land private land open to sportsmen in, in North Dakota, so it's walk-in program, yep. um, you know, it was a, it was hate, right? There was a lot of a lot of bales on the landscape. A lot of a lot of haying done on plots land, and therefore, it you know there was a lot of public access that was very thin, and the drought also you know a lot of um, grazing in WPAs and in different um, pieces of property where you know you got these cows and they need to eat yep. and. Um, um, so some of those public lands were, were grazed pretty heavily too. So you got the combination of some haid um, public lands, walk in particular, and then some grazing. 
And then you have some other properties that are pretty much intact, right? Like they, the grass and the shrubs and, the, you know, buffalo berries and the buckbrush, everything was kind of left um, to grow yep. within the drought. And, you know, it, surprisingly, in, in North Dakota's had a fair amount of moisture in August um, in early September. And surprisingly, those areas are relatively green. You it know. was it was green. It, 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 I maybe it wouldn't like, categorize it as lush, but it's pretty good. Well, my friend Anthony scouted before, yeah. and he said, and I didn't see it two weeks before, uh, two to three weeks before, and he said it's it looks like a different world mm-hmm. from sear and brown to green. Right. I just saw it green, and I thought, well, where's the drought? Yeah. But you could see the evidence, as you said. Right. It's pretty... That landscape's it's, resilient mm-hmm. uh, with, with the, just add water, right? Yep. So long-winded explanation, um, you know, you, you, when you're out bird hunting, particularly the Dakotas and Montana this year, because in in western Minnesota, um, areas where the emergency hanging grazing was, was in play, um, you're going to have to scout. And we saw that, you know, we arrived the Friday evening and started driving around looking at our, you know, potential places where we'd hunt. And you can see, well, that's going to be too thin to hold birds or that's going to be perfect. And the other hunters that are out scouting that evening and you see, whoa, there's a fair number of people out looking at these places. We're going to get up early. We're going to get, you know, kind of the parking spot and the location where we want. And that was that was wise because there was a lot of other hunters in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota, um, out after Sharpies. And, you know, we talked about it, um, via teams video. Like there's a, there's a major surge in interest around sharp tails and, um, prairie chickens and, and prairie grouse in general, the last, the last couple of years. And you can see that on the landscape and the number of hunters. So, yeah, the moral of the story is if you know where you want to go, um, well, A, do your scouting. B, if you know where you want to go, get there early. Um, C, there are birds out there. Um, I'll add a D. You want to know what D is? Hmm. You don't have to be there. There's more days than opening day in the season. And it's, a, it's an old wives' tale that, oh, there's, the prairie grouse start getting wild and you can't get them. It's, that's BS. You got – you. Maybe avoid the openers and go out when nobody is out there. Sure. And I guarantee you, you'll find birds and you'll find birds that sit. They're not, they're not that much different two or three weeks in the season. Um, you can get them. So I'm not going to avoid the opener because it's too. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I I'm not either. No, I'm not either. But I, I'll, I'll be willing to bet you that a lot of hunters you saw, that was their, two, their day and a half for the year. Right, right. And I'm leaving in five days for a 10-day a 10-day junket. It's not even a junket. I can't use the word that I'm calling it. It's <laughs> a vacation. My prairie grouse vacation, and it's going to be three states. It's ch- sharp tails and chickens, yeah. and it's well after all openers, and I guarantee you the traffic's going to be much less. You're right. Um, you know, the openers draw everybody's attention, but as you've pointed out um, in blogs and podcasts and other ways, you know, if you hunt Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday— um, yeah. you'll lose a lot of hunting pressure 
and have your choice of spots. Yep. Um, yeah, you know, the re- that's the reality of sharp tails, pheasants, quail, you know, weekend warriors, right? And particularly opening day. I mean, we, we all got to work and yep. not everybody has the flexibility to hunt midweek. But if you're, oh, like my buddy Dave Simonette and a touring artist, you, you get to hunt Mondays because yep. most of your concerts are on the yeah, weekend. You're, yeah, you're pushed right? into it. Or if you're like carp and you're wise and take your uh, your vacations, um, you know, you, you, you kind of hold your vacation days tight and then use them um, midweek. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, pheasant hunting, sharp tail hunting, everything. It's, it's the same way. Um, I'm... I'm 100% convinced that you run into less traffic if you hunt weekdays, but I, that's a mantra I've saying for oh, many no years. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody can't do it, but if you can, try it. Yeah. You know? I, I think overarchingly, you know, two things. Um, number one, have optimism for the season ahead. Yeah, there's been a drought, but uh, – and, and it's – it wreaked havoc on our friends in the agriculture community, farmers and ranchers. But from a bird perspective, um, there's a lot of hope out there. Um, based on what I saw, the there are bird bird numbers are encouraging, and I think it's going to be a pretty good season ahead. Um, based on what I what I saw, so get out there and uh, lots of lots of reason to. Uh, to, to be encouraged. The other thing, though, number two is is scout, because this the conditions as you think they are based upon what you left last fall or last winter have changed. Yeah, it's uh, everything you said is spot on in my opinion, and based on what I've seen in my travels this summer to South Dakota for fishing and stuff, and then back out to the North Dakota now. Mm-hmm. Take a look at the Pheasants Forever Pheasant Forecast. Those are hardline reporting on what's going on in the ground. They're not going to tell you where to go, but they are going to start your research process. And I agree, it's going to be a good season. We're pivoting ourselves back to pheasants now. It's going to be a good season, but be prepared for what you might or might not see out on the landscape and um, I'll give our Pheasants Forever plug right now. If there's ever a year when it's going to be clear that habitat is what we need, mm-hmm. it's this year. So get joined to Pheasants Forever, get renewed, get extended. Um, because one year of drought isn't that worrisome. But what is is when you go into the second or the third, right. if that happens again. And that's where habitat really comes into play. Um and that sort of brings us to what we're talking about today. You're, Look at that. I might as well take over the podcast. <laughs> How was that for a segue? It's a wonderful segue. Well, I don't want it. I just like being a guest. <laughs> well, I will, uh, I'll, I'll read a, um, a commercial spot from our partners, and then we'll segue into the meat of the conversation. Um, so thank you to South Dakota Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks for sponsoring On the Wing podcast. South Dakota pheasant hunting season is almost here. Their, their sharp tail and prairie chicken season starts tomorrow as we record this. So uh, I know a lot of people will be uh, heading to South Dakota in the near future. Um, are you all set to go to South Dakota? Visit huntthegreatest.com to get your South Dakota license and plan 
the upland adventure of your lifetime in South Dakota. All right, without further ado, we're going to run through um, the blog <laughs> written by Tom Carpenter, Identifying Prime Pheasant Habitat for Hunting. And Carp identifies three habitat components to look for when you're picking a pheasant hunting spot. Um, all right. Recognizing prime pheasant habitat, number one on the list, and if for listeners who are trying to predict, if you've ever been pheasant hunting, you can probably predict what number one is. But we're going to have to dive a little deeper um, because it means the word grass means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, and we won't go down all the different things the word grass means. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, okay, Number one on your list, Carp, is grass. It seems somewhat obvious, but it's a deep conversation. Yeah, it's not. Grass is not just grass. There's different styles. Or what would the hierarchy be? There's different genus, species, subspecies, and all are not created the same when it comes to wildlife habitat. And within wildlife habitat, we have pheasant habitat. Mm-hmm. Grass, you know we can think about what happens to our bluegrass lawn when it get when we let it go it would it would turn into something that might sort of half resemble what if could hide a pheasant mm-hmm. but it's not going to be good pheasant habitat it's not going to be good wildlife habitat there's other grasses that are like that too you, we might we might mention brome as one of those mm-hmm. brome is that grass you see it it's sort of got blades it's maybe a foot to 18 inches tall and it's soft and when it rains it gets flat and <clears throat> those aren't the grasses we're talking about so grass as you said bob is obvious but what isn't obvious is what's good grass and that sort of comes back down to what a lot of what pheasants forever is is grasslands uplands prairie restorations pollinator habitat all those words bring me to native grasses mm-hmm. and when you think about that go to a go to a good restoration and you'll begin to you'll begin to start learning what it, what good pheasant habitat looks like and we'll get into this uh, side light a little later, and that is when you find pheasants, think about where they're at, and you'll start to notice all grasses are not created equal. And that's as simple as I can say it. And the ones that are more equal than the others are the natives. They're blue stem, big and little blue stem. It's Indian grass. It's June grass. And you can look all these up and look at them, and you've seen them in the field. You just mm-hmm. might not know what they are. And I'm no pro at identifying mm-hmm. them all, but I like to sort of geek out and think I know some of them. And that's good enough for you to start recognizing it. The second part of grass is not grass. And here's what I mean by that is it's Forbes. It's wildflowers. It's that stiff stem stuff. Mm-hmm. Think of those three stiff stem stuff with leaves that stands up to cold winter winds, to everything, to rain, some, and to some extent to snow, and so does blue stem. They're wildflowers. They're forbs. They're that pollinator habitat that supports butterflies and bees and flowers in the summer. And it's also good for brooding mm-hmm. because unlike grass, unlike some grass, like is so dense down below the, that chicks can't run around right. in it. Forbs 
have a more open understory. Mm-hmm. And little birds, and oh, guess what? Big birds can run around under it, and they sur- they do better in it because they're more likely to run. And that's good for their survival. It's it it's and it's what makes your hunt fun. But that's what grass that that's what I talk about when you're looking for. And, and this is sort of the narrowest of all our looks at grass. Mm-hmm. We'll probably want to look a little broader from here. But think about the quality. It, it maybe comes down to this. Think about the quality of the grass that you're looking at that you're looking to hunt. Um, I don't know. What do you think of that? That's that's what I have to say about that that yeah. narrowest that narrowest niche on grass. So I think um, you know, as a kid growing up in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, I didn't have a lot of pheasants around, right? And the pheasants you did find were in grass adjacent to trees, right? So the as you head further east in this country, there's more and more trees, right? And it's easy to be sort of confused by pheasants living in shelter belts or groves. But the reality is pheasants really, they they transition from some of that or get out of, you know, winter. But they really live in what I grew up envisioning as prairies, right? Yes. Grasslands, prairies. And that's as I moved west to minnesota and and learned to hunt pheasants in iowa and as i've proceeded out to the dakotas and montana and nebraska and kansas you start to evolve your thinking about okay where am i locating pheasants right and and i i think a watershed moment for me was in nebraska and i've talked a lot about nebraska over the years in their walk-in program used to be called CRP map is now known as open fields and waters. And it is, um, if not the best among the best walk-in programs where it integrates habitat improvements and public access. And one thing that is noticeable on a, like I say, a three-year-old habitat project is, as you mentioned, the kind of the composition of the different grasses and flowers together. And on this particular hunt um, in Nebraska, I could see I could see the world through the eyes of a pheasant. And it's these clumped up blue stem. And clumped, I mean, like on the ground, like there's patches of clumpy grass where the pheasant could pheasants could kind of duck in there and hide. Yet there's sort of an open area where there's stems of compass plant and coneflower. And yep. it's the bug attracting flowers that we talk about in the pollinator episodes. But it also creates the open understory, which you mentioned as brood cover. So those chicks that are the size of your fist, if it was all just just a, a, a wall of grass, those little pheasants and those little quail would not be able to get through. And that's... That's where, you again, you start to look at the entirety of the composition, the clumped grass, blue stem, the flowers, you know, the stands of thicker grass where they maybe duck in and avoid avian predators. And you start to see the world, and I I know I've done this before, but you start to see the world um, like a fish relating to structure, right? Or an angler relating to, you know, you find bass underneath logs, submerged logs, right? Right. Or on weed lines, on drop-offs. Well, if you think about pheasant hunting and grass habitat in the same way, 
grass uh, pheasants relate to grass same way that largemouth relate to stumps and in logs and you you start thinking about the those connections and you can start more clearly identifying ooh that's birdie i th- i think you're right i'd even go a step farther i like the analogy of grass equals stump but i would say grass is even more important i would say grass equals water hmm that's the base of everything, mm-hmm. and that, and so we're we're sure, talking sure. the same language. But yeah. well, I think what you're talking about about the stump is maybe the edge, mm-hmm. the grass where the grass meets the cattails, or the grass right. meets the right. willows. Those are the stumps, but the grass is the water. Without grass, you don't right. have pheasants. That's a good good clarification because I was thinking like the clumped grass, right? That's that's the stump. It's the clumpiness, but the, you're talking the grass in general is is the is the lake right it's the yep. water in the lake that's where they live that's what yep. they need and and as with fishing some water is better than others mm-hmm. and as with grass some grass is better than others and the best grass is the things we've been describing and you wonderfully described it's clumpy it's here and there mm-hmm. it's not a monoculture it's different species it's blue stem, it's grandma, it's all that different grass. And you, you'll know it. Just just look it up and start, at, you as the list, just just start looking it up and getting out in it and seeing it. And you'll, you'll start to recognize it. And, and the experienced pheasant hunters know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're becoming a pheasant hunter, it doesn't take long to learn it. Um, and one key, not to interject yet, but one key, just like fishing, what makes you a better angler is the same thing that can make you a better pheasant hunter, and that's what water can you eliminate instantly? What can you look at on that lake and say, well, I'm not going to waste my time there. I, I need to go find the structure. And the same thing is true with pheasant hunting and grass, because you should be able to, you talked about brome earlier, and, and it, these are not all absolutes, because you no. and I have both shot pheasants out of brome. No, yeah, but, exactly. But it, you you should be able to eliminate a lot of brome because it's just a monoculture of, it, it's sort of a dead sea. If you hunt the edge of brome where it hits another type of grass or a fence line or a cattail, so that, you know, that's different. Yep. But if you're, you know, I can think about just some Western Minnesota WPAs that all they are seas of brome. I'm going to go hunt someplace differently or I'm going to hunt the intersection of that brome and a cattails and on a snowstorm, yep. you know, but, but eliminating what's not productive is as valuable as identifying as what is productive. Yep. You're, you've only got so many hours. You got, I always put it this way. Your, your, your dog's paws only have so much, so much resistance in them to pounding them and, and your dog only has so much time in it in its run in its day you only have so much time don't learn good grass like we're talking about and start there now here here's a brome story you know we're, we're not bashing brome it's 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 out there it's not it's not anywhere near a quality style wildlife habitat but last year i was hunting it was out near marshall minnesota that's as, that's as detailed as i'm gonna go <laughs> i called my friend troy dale i said troy I can't find any birds where I'm at. I said, it's the most gorgeous cover I've ever seen. He said, go hunting some brome. They've been 
pounded. Huh. I went up in the brome and I shot two roosters in three hours, which I thought, no, that's a pretty good hunt. Mm. They were up in the brome. Why? Because <laughs> they'd, they'd been pressured. Now, they'll be back in that grass, mm-hmm. and they'll be in the cattails. But uh, it's like you said, you, you eliminate it, but you, you eliminate a lot of grass, and you go for the best. Yeah. And, and yeah. hopefully we've talked about what the best is here. Well, one tip – uh, get yourself, everybody's, most people these days, I wish I didn't, has an, uh, has a phone of some kind of droid or iPhone. Yeah. Um, download an app that, a nature app like iSeek or iNature that you can hold your camera up to a type of grass and it tells you, identifies that grass for you. So you can start to identify, you know, what's bl- little blue stem versus, oh, that's a coneflower stuff, um, um a stem um, or Indian grass or, or reeds, canary grass, yeah. Rudbeckia, right. all these. And, and, and you hold that um, and you start to be able to identi- identify these different grasses through an app. And then you start to connect the dots on what, where you're finding birds to what some of these grasses are. And, I, and you've said it, um, but I'll reiterate it. The more diverse uh, stand with all sorts of different things, um, so different grasses, whether they're, you know, cold season, warm season, native, uh, whatever, if they, if there's a mix, um, that's probably going to be you know, the yep. place I'm going to go to first. We talked a little bit about scouting. One last sort of grass tip is, you know, if you're serious about pheasant hunting and, and you're going out to scout and you maybe do it in August, let's say early September, you can go out. And look at places that maybe I'm going to pheasant hunt in in October mm-hmm. and November. And if you see flowers, mark them and yeah. say because flowers are are that are that that wild card in with the grass, in with the blue stem, and we're all glumping mm-hmm. it as grass. But you can find them by oh, imagine this the color, mm-hmm. um, goldenrods, another good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see, you can see the color, um, and you'll know where flowers are just because of the blooms that right. are going to last through August. So it's a good point. Flowers equal bugs equal magnet for birds. Yep, yep, and particularly early season um, when you know, you, I mean, how many openers, pheasant openers, have you popped open the crop and all that's in there are grasshoppers? Yep. Right. And, you know, that's where you're going to find the pollinator habitat, the flowers, you're going to find the grasshoppers and you're going to find the broods. And pheasants are homebodies. They, they're born, born, raised and die on who knows exactly how much, but we'll say maybe at most a square mile. Yeah. They're, they're there. Yeah. Um, well, and a side tip, you and I are both um, r- rough grouse hunters as well. Same thing with early season rough grouse hunting, which is a wood species. But early season, if you can identify a place that's got a little opening, a little pasture, a forest road, a trail, a two-track that has grasshoppers, you will find rough grouse broods opening two weeks of the season for yep. sure. Yep, they're out. This sunshine creates grass and and things like clover and greens. And uh, you know the the deep dark forest primeval is not that full of of food, right? But the edges are the well, sunny the sunny edges. And quail too. Yep. Right. 
grasshoppers or game bird uh, gourmet. Yep. All right. Uh, number two on Carp's list, another G word. We go from grass to grain. All right. Grain is a, uh, encompasses a lot. Uh, tell us about grain. Grain might be almost classified as food, but it is the key food for pheasants. And as I just mentioned, pheasants don't migrate. Uh, they might have a little seasonal movement here and there, but for the most part, like a covey of quail, their home bodies, their range is going to be bigger than a covey of quail. But I, I'd call them a homebody. And they're it, at their core, other than brood rearing season and summer when they uh, adults too will eat mm-hmm. will eat bugs. Mm-hmm. Right. Pheasants are granivores. Right. They eat seeds, especially after the frost. Especially after the frost, when the bugs die. Yep. And and seeds come in many ways, shapes, and forms. But the most productive for a pheasant is grain. And some of this harkens back to, I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack my little side story of this is, pheasants are more American than we are. There's been uh, 125, what, 140 since 1880s? Mm-hmm. 1840 1880s. generations of pheasants here. Mm-hmm. But pheasants developed where? In the Far East. Mm-hmm. And what were, who knows exactly how they came to be, but... One of my, but I know they came to be in a landscape that includes grass and grain. Hmm. And the grain there was rice. Hmm. And they need grain because they're those granivores. And even if they can get by without grain, we can talk about that too. That's hmm. Even if they can get by without grain, there's more of them where there is grain. Hmm. And that's why, you know, Pheasants Forever is so obviously tied to agriculture mm-hmm. in, a, in a landscape and balance and, and all those things that they're good for agriculture and for wildlife. Pheasants need grain. And if you're, so it, it, to me, it's as simple as this. If you're out scouting for a place to hunt pheasants, and especially like you say, if it's November, mm-hmm. December, you better be hunting in a place where, oh, there's some grain over there. There's a, either corn stubble or soybean stubble. Corn, I'd say best, soybean second, or Lord help us, something like wheat or oats or the small grains, which are even better, but less common on the landscape now. And you're missing uh, the number one for me in the Great Plains, which is sorghum. sorghum. Yeah, sor- sor- I, I, I sort of put sorghum in its own class mm. um, because sorghum is both cover and food. True, that's a good point. And but you're right, sorghum is maybe the perfect one. But there's got to be grain, especially as when you think about who we are as pheasant hunters. And we all like the first couple weeks of the season. It's mm-hmm. fun. There's more birds on the landscape, all that. But what what a lot of us live for, and I think you and I are about are, are no exception, is that late as the season wears on mm-hmm. that's when it gets really fun because there's still birds out there but it's more it's challenging and they're, they're starting to maybe concentrate a little bit mm. why are they where are they going to concentrate there's going to be if there's good solid grass left mm-hmm. but also grain they need that food they need to stoke their furnace mm-hmm. and grain is what does it it, it and allows a more dense population of pheasants to exist. 
So you said a word, granivores. Is that a real word? Granivores. Granivores? Yep. Okay. Yep. They're a granivore. I, I have a buddy who um, refers to brook trout as opportunivores, <laughs> that, <laughs> which, which I think in some ways parallels pheasants. You know, they yeah. go from, you know, beetles and, and, and uh, grasshoppers to sorghum and soybeans. Yeah, you, and you find all kinds of things in their crops. Right. I mean, I've found, you know, yeah, wor- yeah. worms, grubs. Snakes. Snakes. Um, I think the, the weirdest thing I ever saw um, was a, a little itty-bitty salamander, mm. maybe two inches long. Mm. But, oh, gobbled it up. Opportunivore. Opportun- I, I'd agree they're opportunivores, but the, the best opportunity for them is grain. Yeah. And... Yeah. You'll you'll get them. I wrote in the story, and you'll have to read. It's in the in the fall uh, edition of Pheasants Forever Journal. No, this is the this is online. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Th- this is online. Re- that's right. Read it online. I'm mixing up my stories here, <laughs> which is which is good. It means I'm writing a lot. Um, the farthest I've ever I once shot a pheasant six miles from a grain. For, I know because I've che- I've rechecked it online. Six miles from the nearest grain field. Mm. That's the furthest. That's the furthest, and okay. that was by far, by far, by far the exception. I, and I'd say, um, in the story, I say I will bet you a case of shotgun shells that ninety percent of the pheasants I've ever shot were within a half mile, and at that, most of them within a quarter mile, and usually less of grain land of some type. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think of that? Do you agree with that? Do you oh, think my yeah. numbers are off? No, I. So okay couple things that immediately come to mind and I'm sure listeners like, well, guys, most people focus on, um, harvested corn. Right. And I think the the highest percentage of pheasants are probably shot in the first couple of weeks of the corn harvest. Right. And, and that's partly the, just the preponderance of corn that's out there, especially next to what public wildlife areas. So, yeah, 100%. If you see a John Deere tractor get ready to harvest corn next to some grass, get your butt over there, because, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. there is no sure bet for finding birds than a John Deere running through a cornfield and you being in the grass next to it. Yep. Um, so so corn, um, you know, it, is largely kind of the focal point for people to, um, to find – Find roosters in the fall. I think your point is, yeah, corn is the obvious one, but don't overlook the rest. 100%. You know, sorghum, particularly as you had, you know, sorghum, you can find sorghum in South Dakota, but as particularly as you head to Kansas, Nebraska, yeah. um, there's a lot of walk-in areas where sorghum, as you mentioned, is kind of unique in that. You know, we even do it with our own signature series, mix in sorghum with food yep. because it does stand up to winter. And sorghum is a higher energy food for pheasants, for quail, and it's a great place to key in on. Soybeans, also good. I I tend to find more sharp tails near soybeans where where you do have sharp tails and pheasants together. Yeah. More sharp tails next to soybeans than I do pheasants. I'd, I wouldn't say that you should avoid soybeans by any stretch, but no. but be ready because sharp tails seem to gravitate towards soybeans. I, I think it's because soybeans gravitate to 
Sharptail country. Crappier ground. I, I, that's not the right word, but ru- tougher. Tougher to farm ground. Tougher to farm ground is more likely to have soybeans. And tougher to farm ground is, is more sharptail country. But I, I'm with you. Sharp, and <laughs> you talk about pheasants as homebodies, and, and um, sharptails are sort of the opposite. I mean, yep. sharptails are homebodies, but the, their range is, is, if a pheasant's range is a square mile, which is generous, it's, it's less than that unless they're getting bandied about. A sharp tails is 10 square miles. Mm-hmm. They'll, they will fly to grain and back. That's more likely the farther west you go, mm-hmm. um, the farther east you go, which is a relative term, meaning, you know, the Missouri River, the mm-hmm. mid, mid plains, you know, they'll, they'll definitely be, they can definitely be associated with the grain. Um, but there's got to be that grass there. But yeah. I, I'm with you, soybeans. I think that soybeans just happen to go better with sharptail country right. and corn is pheasant country is more pheasant. So country. let's a couple others wheat, yep. uh, particularly as you head west and in northwest Montana and such. Um, you certainly will find, and I'm also thinking about walking areas in Kansas and Nebraska. You will certainly find pheasants, quail, in yep. wheat. Um, no doubt about it, Hungarian partridge, and to some extent, sharptails gravitate towards wheat as well. Yep. But, um, I think about sunflowers and <laughs> flax, right? And you can find, well, again, everything next to those. Yep. Um, but sunflowers seem, again, and I connect sunflowers with sharpies. Yeah, they're in, it's great pheasant too. I mean, I didn't even think about sunflowers, but you're right. Uh, they're they're a magnet as mm-hmm. well. And they're another one that can serve both as food and cover too. It's, yeah. They're a little more open. If you, have, if you have access to them, they're awfully tough to hunt in because the, I mean, I, I was hunting one last year in, in central South Dakota, standing sunflowers field. And it was so frustrating because you could see them a hundred yards ahead and just walking ahead. And if, if, if pheasants do have a middle toe, he'd turn around every once in a while and give me, give us his middle toe. It's like, just why don't you, why don't you losers give up? (laughs) And if you've ever tried to hunt through corn and you thought that was tough, try hunting through sunflowers. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's impossible. It's loud. They scrape you. Yeah. I mean, you're better at withstanding sunflowers like standing corn. You're better off waiting for the last hour of the day and and hunting the 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 adjacent grass where the birds are going to come. Yeah. 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 But yeah, sunflowers good too. Pheasants love them. All game birds love them. Mm -hmm. Um, I love to see them out in the landscape. But you're you're right. I mean, ultimately, it's it's finally, and we've mentioned it a number of times, but I'll focus on the word it's the edge yep. it's the intersection of where that that grain is or was yep right because after it's harvested there's some waste grain or residual that's still going to be fed on for months after the harvest yep. and it's where that grass and that grain or the harvested grain meets and uh, you know uh, so many people know that and they focus on the edge and they just walk the perimeters of wildlife yep. areas, um, which works particularly early in the season, or as you mentioned, the golden hour when birds are going from feeding to roosting. Um, but don't get so locked into only walking edges and perimeters, especially as the season progresses, that that's the only thing you hunt. Because the birds have played this game, you know, by three days into the season, you know, 13 
couple of 13, 14 people have already walked that edge and those birds are going to bounce. You just need to have grain relatively yep. close. It doesn't have to be immediately next to it to find those birds. That's the key. As you were describing that, you hit what I wanted to say, in which I read before but is worth reiterating, and that is the edge is perfect, uh, like a literal intersection, corn here, grass here, let's hunt. Everybody knows that. That's fine, and it's good. It works. But I also said 90% came within a half mile. Mm -hmm. That means a lot of birds came a half mile from grain, which is a long way. Right. So as you said, don't be afraid to hunt there because they'll walk there. They'll also fly there, especially the late. I think, I believe the later the season gets, the more likely birds are to fly from here to there to feed and then to fly back into cover. And if they set their wings and coast, they, they're probably not going to coast 10 yards into the grass. They're probably going to coast 200 yards into those cattails. So you use, you use the right word. The grain has to be there, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to be next door. Right. But it, I, think it's, I think it's essential to when you're, when you're scouting out a place to hunt. If I wanted to shoot pheasants, I'm not going to go on a national grassland four miles from the nearest grain field. I'm going to be somewhere a lot closer to agriculture. Yeah, right. That's for pheasants. For pheasants. Sharp yep. tails and chickens, different story. Different story. Yep. Um, all right. Before we get to number three, uh, I want to uh, tell listeners about the Hunter Mentor Pledge. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have partnered with Alps Outdoors to challenge hunters to preserve America's outdoor lifestyle by taking a new or lapsed hunter afield this year. The Hunter Mentor Pledge is our organization's critically important call to action to unite all sportsmen and women across the country. To inspire new participants and encourage mentors, we are providing some great incentives, including a guided hunt for one mentor and one new hunter. This season, let's rally the Upland community to grow our hunting heritage and support wildlife habitat conservation because our future depends on it. Learn more and take the Hunter Mentor Pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. Thanks to Alps Outdoors and thanks to all the mentors teaching new people to hunt. You are helping save the lifestyle. All right, number, big number three, Carp, cattails and brush. Winter cover, we've, we've mentioned cattails a couple of times, um, and it's, it's the grand recipe, right? It's, it's grass, it's grain, right? So where they live, where, and the food, and then where they're going to get out of, um, out of the cold, the shelter. Yep. So tell us about cattails and brush. Yeah, get out, get out of the, not only get out of the cold, but also get away from hunters and mm -hmm. pressure. Mm -hmm. um, they need, pheasants need something besides green and grass. And n this number three, cattails or brush, <clears throat> it's sort of a punt, but it's not a punt because the idea is hiding cover, escape cover, 
and cattails can serve it, but you get to some places in pheasant country and there ain't no cattails. Mm. You know, we, we talk mm -hmm. about it often, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Kansas, you get down there a little drier. There's not as many cattails. You have to have something. Uh, a lot of us though, Northern Plains cattails are it. That That's that third, that third, um, leg of the stool. Mm. But like I said, it, it can be brush, and, and in many places it, it intermixes, and, and it's hard to tell the difference. I think often of red willow, mm -hmm. tag alders, uh, plum thickets. Plum, plum thickets. The farther south you get, they're just wonderful for mm -hmm. all game birds. Russian olives. Russian olives, little in, little invasive, but they're good. They're they're good cover, mm -hmm. you know. And then also think of you know all the other the viburnums and the. Dog, I said, I mentioned, did I mention dogwoods? No. All no. these, all these different shrubs, we'll call them shrubs, brush and shrubs, sort of interchangeable. Uh, the more native, the better, um, but any is better than nothing. Mm. And you need, you need that, this third leg of, of the stool when, when birds have been pressured and equally importantly, as we talked about November, December, it's getting later season something else needs to be on the landscape and it doesn't, it, it can't be two miles away. It's got to be right there where they're, where they're, uh, where they're living. Yeah. And it's that, it's that word mosaic, which our friend Jared Wickland often uses, uh, a fine pheasant hunter as well. And he talks about the mosaic and this is the third part of that mosaic and they have to be there. Right. And which is why we talk sorghum yep. as well, because it, it's kind of the combo. It hits two of them. Yep. You got food and you got uh, sturdy stemmed yep. cover for yep. winter. And, and you can harvest it with the head high. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a lot down left on the ground. And you still have cover. Mm -hmm. You know, think about sorghum and where that, where that head of it is. Maybe uh, getting toward your knee high. You cut those heads off. And if you have wildlife in mind, there's still a lot of sorghum left with all that cover. Yeah. Uh, a mutual buddy of ours matt kaharski who, who's the chair um refer he he refers to willows as his comfort food right yeah. it, 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 if he's struggling to find birds he finds the willows and goes to the willows and in, invariably yeah. that's where the birds are and yeah there is a story in our super issue this this year we we coined wind in the willows and that and that's exactly what it is um and not, not only when the weather's, but also if the weather is getting, if there's wind, if there's mm -hmm. other, other elements coming at you, that's another reason to have cattails and brush like willows mm -hmm. is that's where the pheasants are going to go. Mm -hmm. You know, they need, they need more cover. They need more protection. Um, and th that stiff grass can do it, but they, this third element is, is, a, I think is essential mm. in, in, your evaluation of a pheasant hunting spot. And it is also the the component that creates sort of the uh, additional variables. Uh, and what, I guess where my head's going is you, cattails are great if they're froze. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. Because yeah, there's a lot of cattails that you can't get in because they're wet and mucky. Um, yep. But if it's cold enough and, and it's frozen, you can hunt them. But there's a lot of times that they become... Um, islands of, um, I don't know, sort of uh, safety, safety zones for, for the birds because people can't get to them yep. until certain times of the year. And if you're a new hunter, 
a new pheasant hunter, you know, those cattails and grass edges are, are good places to hunt. We talked about the, mm-hmm. gra- the grass and the green edge. But also if you get into a property, think about those cattail and grass edges where pheasants will like to hang. They, they don't necessarily want to be standing in a in, – they can't stand in too much water. They will stand in some water, mm-hmm. but they'd prefer not to. Right. That's why those, those edges are prime right. uh, as well. Just a, a tip for the newer pheasant hunter. The experienced ones know that, but if you're new to pheasant, hunting edges are important and think about cattails and grass as an edge or brush and grass or the intermixture of the two which is almost best of all and that that comes back to what Kaharski says mm-hmm. you know because you're you're mixing you're, you have a mosaic of cover grass and brush wow that's pretty good mm-hmm. put a little grain within 200 yards it's like yeah there's going to be pheasants here right the holy trinity of pheasant habitat grass grains and cattails or, yep. or, or winter cover uh, we need to come up with a g word for that uh, i'll work on that right. <laughs> grass greens and we'll, we'll come up with something all right as we close out here you th- offered three additional bonus tips um in this start story and you start with mix it up and that's the mosaic I talked about. We sort of talked about this one, but if when you're when you're looking for a pheasant place, don't look for the other M. Mix it up is is sort of the tip. Mm-hmm. Mosaic is the word, right? Which is opposite of monoculture. Mm-hmm. You don't want to. Mo- you like alliteration. I do. I, it's <laughs> it's I I do. All it's right. One of the ma- it's one of the magical <laughs> it's one of the magical features of the English language, but um, and it makes me happy when I think of stuff like like mix it up mosaic and avoid monoculture. And so as you avoid a monoculture of grass, i.e., a two hundred acres of brome, we talked about that. No need to cover that. Avo- avoid. Uh, Avoid a monoculture of, mm. of any one thing. Mm-hmm. You've got to look for that mosaic. All right. Well, roll on to the next alliteration from mix it up to? Make it big. Okay. And what do you mean by that? So this is getting into some some secrets that that are maybe second level. Mm. But when I think, but, and I think about, think about a new hunter. And even if you've hunted before, and you're 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 thinking, God, you know, I've never been to X area. And I think about it in Minnesota, wh- whether it's South Central or the Northwest corner of Pheasant Range, whatever it is, or if it's South Dakota, or it's a new place. You're you're going to hunt a new place, a new state, or a new region in a state you've been before. And you're like, where should I go? You know, if you're smart, you're doing, you're making some calls ahead. You're calling biologists, you're calling DNR, you're calling game war. But you're also looking at these maps, either a plat book or your Onyx, and you're studying and you're like, well, this spot looks good. What about this one? How, how can you sort of narrow your search? And one way I do it is by looking for an area that is not just an isolated block of cover, but it's what I would call a complex, a series of areas. And maybe it's one big wildlife area, mm-hmm. 2,800 acres, or maybe it's, maybe it's 3,400 acres that, empl- that employs wildlife areas, waterfowl areas, mm-hmm. uh, crep land or walk, walk-in mm-hmm. type land. The bigger the complex, the better, because the more 
mosaic, to use the other M words you're going to have, mm-hmm. there is, and the more opportunity you're going to have to have birds there because there's just more habitat. And, and the last point I'll make there is about, the, about make it big is if you're, and, and there's nothing wrong with seeing, God, this little 40-acre plot looks good. Let's hit it. But mm-hmm. if somebody else has hit it, there's nothing else there. But if it's a 2,750-acre place, mm-hmm. The, bir- the birds are maybe still there somewhere. You just got to go find them. Yeah, it's a good point. So look for, at least if you're starting out your search, look for what, what I would call a complex and start your thir- search there. Hundreds of acres into thousands of acres. And they don't have to be one, two, three, lined up, mm-hmm. contiguous. Some of them will be. But if they're within a quarter mile, a half a mile, that's in that mile right, square we're talking about. Let me ask you... Um, all right, if if that takes us from a 100-level course to 200-level course, let me ask you a 300-level question. When you look at, say, a, a plots map or a walk-in map, and you see a big complex, say you get two complexes. One is two, 2,700 acres, like you mentioned, and it's all, let's say, game production area, South Dakota, GPA, one color. Or you have 2,700 acres and you got like four different colors. You got WPA, WMA, uh, walk-in, and let's say national grassland, right? Does one pull you over the other, or doesn't it matter in your mind? Uh, a, a complex that's all kind of managed by one entity or um, a complex that maybe has four different entities managing different parcels? Does it matter to you? They're both good, but I have a definite preference. Me too. The four colors. No doubt about it. Give me the four colors. A lot of reasons. There's going to be more diversity there, which mm-hmm. the mosaic we've talked about. It the, All this stuff rolls together. There's more diversity. Here, here's the other thing is, and I don't say this in a derogatory way, but in some ways, some hunters are lazy. They're like, yeah, I don't want to switch. I don't want to have to figure out when I need non-toxic shock. And I'm just going to go on this wildlife area mm-hmm. and hunt because I use lead here. And so that that's sort of a side factor, but it's real. Mm. You know, like I just want to shoot my lead. I go, God, I got to change my shells out. It's like, so that's a side factor, but the main factor is give me the four colors. Give me that, The give me what I, what I, what assumptively is going to be some cattails in the brush and the cover on the WPA, not to mention mm-hmm. the higher level, the high grass. Give me the game production areas where, uh, where the game and fish department, whatever it is, whatever state mm-hmm. might be doing some managing. There might be some food plots, right. which are great. They're probably managing grass, maybe doing burns. Um, you're managing by different entities and there's there the that that covers at different stages and then the walk-ins i think are a wonderful component there because then if they're walk-ins you've probably got some grain around there on the edges right. too there's some working lands component yeah. to it nothing wrong with a big old i i think and we're probably maybe we're changing the mindset here but I think a big old game area is, is attractive to people. Like, yeah, we're going to go to that 3,400-acre place, um, and it's good. I, I hunt them too, but give me a choice, and I'm taking four colors every time. Mm-hmm. All right. Your final, your final tip, pay attention. 
It does. It doesn't have alliteration, so you're gonna have to bring the hammer down on this one. I'm sorry, I failed on my <laughs> alliteration with everything. The idea here is, it's simple. When you see a fe- when you find a pheasant, you kill it or not, who cares? When you see pheasants or you start seeing them, stop for a minute and think. What's, what is here? What, why is this pheasant here? What am I seeing? What is this grass like? Where is the grain? What is the brush like? What is the time of day? And why is this pheasant here? And you'll, you'll start to learn. Mm-hmm. You'll start to learn what good pheasant habitat looks like, what that good grass looks like, mm-hmm. how far or close are you to the grain, and how far can I be from the grain? And wow, I this is the third one I've found in these damn red willows. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And then it, that brings in, is it, was it a windy day? Is it not windy? Is it cold? Is it hot? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's the beauty of it. You, you, you never quite know. And if you don't think about it, you never will know why, where I should hunt today. And if you stop, if you stop and think about it a little bit, pay attention, stop and think, you start to build that, that base of knowledge that I started in, in 1974 in Green <laughs> County, Wisconsin, when I started geeking out on, on, on hunting pheasants. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll leave you with, I, I, we started on sharp tails. Mm-hmm. And we've sort of got sharp tails on the mind until it's pheasant season here. Right. I mean, there's going to be a little dalliance with rough grouse here. You, you and I are both going tomorrow different mm-hmm. places. Last week, and this, this goes to any type of upland hunting, which is why I bring it up. Last week in North Dakota, I stopped at a place I was hunting, and we had just shot a bird, uh, Lark and I, and I, I did, the, did the pictures and admired the bird. I, I love sharp tails. And we sat there a while, and I thought, well, let's continue on. And we, we sat there only a minute or two, um, and we continued on, and I stopped at one spot, and Lark was working ahead, and I thought, this is the most beautiful little stretch of sharptail country I've ever seen. Hmm. And I thought, because I've stopped to think about it before and what's there, and this is another podcast hmm. for the what sharptail country is. And I took three pictures. I went one, two, three. And I thought, and I put my phone in, and I took five steps, and Lark went on point. Hmm. Two minutes later, and I, I have the proof on the, on the phone at – at 9:19, I was taking pictures of habitat. At 9:21, <laughs> I was taking pictures of lark with this with this sharp tail. Why? Because I had stopped many times before, mm-hmm. and I recognized what was good habitat. And you can do the same thing with pheasants. You'll start to do that when you start thinking about why is this pheasant here? Is it here because of what does this habitat look like? You may, you maybe don't even have to know what brought it there, was, whether it was hunting pressure or the cold or weather, but you'll, you'll begin to learn that. So pay attention, especially as you're starting out. Mm-hmm. But even it's a good tip, even if you hunt pheasants a lot. You'll even, I'll even say this, this is going to sound real geeky. You'll start to smell what good pheasant habitat is like. Wow, we're going to have to do a whole podcast of that one. And that's, that comes down to cattails, maybe, and, mm-hmm. and it also comes down to wildflowers mm-hmm. that we talked about. You'll, it's got a smell to it. Cool. So, it's been a lot of fun. It's really fun. It's fun geeking out on, <laughs> on pheasants, anything pheasants. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks also... 
uh, to Alps Outdoors and Sport Dog Brand uh, for being partners in Path to the Uplands and this podcast. And also thanks to South Dakota Tourism for being partners in On the Wing Podcast. For Pheasants Forever Journal editor Tom Carpenter, I'm Bob St. Pierre, and we're reminding you to always follow the dog. They know good pheasant habitat. (laughs) (laughs) Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.